to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Welcome to this Bible lesson. Who is Jesus Christ? At Barah Ministries, we know this truth that Jesus Christ is God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 makes it clear. For in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. I can't tell you how many of my friends have told me, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus Christ is God? This is one of the hundred places in the Bible where it says Jesus Christ is God or where other people say that he's God or that he's blaspheming because he is describing himself as God. The Bible refers to Jesus in so many ways. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the King of Israel. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the two, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and he is the last. He is the great I Am. I think uh, June Murphy made a song about that. Uh, He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the light of men. And in him there is no darkness at all. It's a pleasure and a blessing to worship the one and only true God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why does Barah Ministries exist? At Barah Ministries, we make a difference by teaching the Word of God verse by verse from God's perspective and not from man's perspective. We are Christians, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord through the study of His Word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 say this, Therefore, beloved, divinely loved believers in Christ, that's what beloved means, While you look for a new heaven and a new earth to come from God, and this is Peter talking about what's going to happen at the end of of time, the earth and the universe as we know it is going to be blown up. You will have a resurrection body that will withstand that blast. It's the equivalent of you watching the greatest fireworks display ever on New Year's Eve as it transitions into New Year's Day. And so there will be this big blast. So therefore, beloved, while you look for a new heaven and a new earth to come from God, and that new heaven and new earth will have no sea, there will be no need for separation between us, keep on being diligent to be found by God in peace, spotless and blameless. Have an amazing life, in other words. 2 Peter 3.15 And regard the patience of our Lord, 
as his desire for you to come to salvation. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to a change of mind about Christ. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him by God, wrote to you the letters that became biblical, 2 Peter 3.16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these same things of which I speak, in which letters are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, just as they distort the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. What Peter is describing here is why Paul ripped his butt. Because Peter was, was being a phony with his Jewish friends. And he wasn't confronting them about the fact that they were rejecting the Messiah. He was being very phony with him. Paul heard about it and came over and bit his head off. And so now Peter is saying, well, you know, some of the stuff that Paul teaches is really hard to understand. There's nothing hard to understand about it. Now, look, the Bible can be confusing sometimes, and that's for sure, simply because you might not have enough of it in you to get the context of it. But the Bible is not just a bunch of stories, and it has no contradictions, and it is the absolute truth. So it's conceivable that it's hard to understand, but it doesn't mean it's confusing. It may just be that you're easily deceived, and the deceiver is always giving you false information about the Bible, like it's just a bunch of stories, or like it is out of date. The Bible requires effort on your part to learn. And we implore you to always compare what is taught in the Bible uh, to what is taught here at Barah Ministries because this isn't an invitation, it's a responsibility. Your job is to check out what I'm teaching and to see if it's accurate. And the standard of accuracy is the Bible. There is no other book that is like this. There is no other book that has no lies in it other than the Bible. Now, hopefully if I write a book someday, it won't have some lies in it, but I'm a human being. I can screw things up, but this is not screwed up. And so compare everything to that. Now, who is God's enemy? It is Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. In John chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord says, Now judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. He will be dethroned at a future time, and he will be the third person thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is, exists. He is a creature. He is not a symbol of evil, and he is not a concept. He isn't a cartoon character with red epidermis and a pitchfork. He is a perfect, gorgeous, well-dressed, former officer angel, and a brilliant genius. And the sad thing is, Satan is an imposter a creature who pretends to be as powerful as God to deceive others for his own fraudulent gain. Satan encourages you to reject the idea of God, which is called atheism, saying there is no God. And Satan encourages you to reject the idea that anyone can, can the, reject the idea that anyone could ever be clear about God, which is agnosticism. There is nothing more frustrating in the world than talking to an agnostic. And they just lead you around in this big circle. Well, I don't think the truth, the mysteries of God can be known. Well, I don't think the mysteries of God can be known. And I always tell them, you should just stop just before mysteries. 
You should just stop at, I don't think. Because you don't. You don't have to go on. Because if you think that God is mysterious, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because God is not mysterious. He is so predictable. And he reveals himself all the time, inside and out of us, in ways that make sense to human beings. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you don't think there's a God, there's something definitely wrong with you. God is not mysterious. He's crystal clear, always predictable in his approach to the human race. It is not for God's, and if it were not for God's protective power, we would be defenseless against Satan. Satan's purpose is to ruin your life. His strategy against the human race is religion. He deceives people into following false teachers and gets them to worship false gods. One of the things that's always funny to me is how the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, call themselves Mormons. They call themselves Latter-day Saints. But then they say they're Christian, too. Well, why you got three names? Right? I don't have three names. My name is Rory. That's it. So it's not Rory sometimes and, you know, Chuck sometimes and some other name. It's Rory. And why are the names that you use to describe your religion, why isn't Christ in it? If Christ is the central figure in divine history, why isn't Christ in the name? Why? And uh, I don't have time to think about all that stuff. You better think about it because your eternal salvation is dependent on what you think about the Christ. So what Satan does, and then the Jehovah's Witnesses are the same, same way. You know, my, I told you my brother was a Jehovah's Witness. Okay, Jehovah, I get it. That's God the Father. Okay, good deal. What about the other two guys? Oh, they're, you know, the Holy Spirit is an energy force like electricity and Jesus Christ is the son, so he's lesser. You see, that irritates me, right? That really irritates me because that's why there's all this conflict between fathers and sons. Because the son perceives that he's lesser than the father. That's stupid. You're both human. And the father is somebody to be honored. The father is somebody who... If the father hadn't done what he did, you wouldn't be here. Fathers are to be honored. Mothers are to be honored. God gave you the perfect father and the perfect mother. They're to be honored. Your opinion about them does not matter. They are to be honored. And, you know, most people just don't understand what honor is. If you don't understand what honor is, just check out the military because they defend you knowing that you're a jerk. And they'll take a bullet for you, knowing that you're a jerk. That's honor. And there are a lot of people in this world who have honor, but there are equally a lot of people who don't. Anyway, Satan is the sponsor of dishonor. And he brings false teachers to teach about false gods and false doctrines. I was involved in Roman Catholicism. I was involved in systematic theology. Do those two things sound anything like Christianity? Answer me. No, No, they don't. So I had to ask myself, what is this that I believe? You have to ask. You have to question. I have to question. I question everything I teach because I'm looking for the out. 
If I can find a lie in the Bible, I don't have to be here on Sunday. Amen? I'm looking for my out. <laughs> Y'all, no, I wouldn't know what to do with it. What do you mean? I wouldn't be up at 3 a.m. I sure would, and I know exactly what it is, and it's fun. <laughs> I was thinking about God this week, and I was thinking, you know, there are rewards in heaven, and hopefully I'll get some. I just have to believe that if you get up and teach the Word of God for 21 straight years, that there's got to be something up there for you. It may have an ice cream cone or something. Feel like yeah, there's got to be there's got to be some hogging dies. Yeah, exactly. No calories. The resurrection body does not get fat. <laughs> we'll be so over that crap. So the spiritual life is warfare, and your soul is the battleground. And as believers in Christ, we follow the Lord's suggestion. In Matthew chapter four, verse ten, Jesus said to Satan, "Get out of here, Satan." He got John Wayne on Satan. You better get out of here, Satan. Because <laughs> it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Amen? Amen? And that's what we're committed to as well. Today's Bible lesson, the successful Christian is a master of self-control. The successful Christian is a master of self-control. Christianity is a great name for the discipline of which we are a part, mainly because it begins with the most important word in any language, Christ. The mistake many people make, though, including Christians, when they think about Christianity is that it's something we perfect through human effort. It's similar to what people think about losing weight. I really want to lose weight, but I don't have the self-discipline to do it. That's a lie. If you have the self-discipline to put a piece of cake in your mouth, then you have the self-discipline to replace it with a salad. Amen? Amen. Tell me. Amen. Yeah, because you don't want to stop eating that piece of cake. That's why your amen is half-hearted. I want to hear some full-hearted, all-in, take-care-of-yourself kind of words. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, Christianity doesn't require self-discipline. God would never entrust something as amazing as Christianity to people who can't eat salad instead of cake. Amen? <laughs> God would never entrust something as amazing as Christianity to people who are described this way by James in his letter, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, you are just a vapor, a mist, a puff of steam that appears for a little while here on earth and then vanishes away. Or how do the Roman Catholics say it at, at Lent? Remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? That's the way we're described by the Bible. So the mastery required to be a successful Christian is produced by God the Holy Spirit, not by us. He places us into a single unity of thought called the fruit of the Spirit, as detailed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is unconditional love, joy, and peace in yourself. First and foremost, God wants you to have a tremendous calm and a tremendous peace inside of yourself. He wants you to be happy, but he also wants you to have a weapon 
in the spiritual warfare and the weapon in spiritual warfare is unconditional love because when you love other people with no conditions you have no expectations of them expectations kill relationships and expectations without agreement is lunacy and there are a lot of people who expect other people to behave a certain way they don't and they aren't going to and for you to expect it from them is a waste of your time you love them unconditionally that puts the power of the relationship clearly in your hands. Other fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness toward others. So you wait for others to develop on their journey. Every person is on his own journey and there is a period of time, perhaps many, in all of our journeys where we do stupid stuff. Right? We're, we're young. We're stupid. I, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is getting to watch my older son Zachary's journey, he's 32 years old, and I watch his journey. And at 32 years old, 32-year-old men do a lot of stupid stuff. Men don't grow up until they're 40 years old, amen? They don't. We just do a lot of stupid stuff. Sorry, right, man, you only got 22 years, don't worry about it. Just take your time. Be on your journey. <laughs> and then Galatians 5.23 the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our relationship with God. Against these virtues, there is no prohibition of law. Well, what's being said here, as Christians, we are to simply enjoy God the Holy Spirit's work in us. That's what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 is all about. Don't get drunk with wine. That is dissipation. What is dissipation? It's the behavior of a person who's out of control. When you get drunk, you're out of control and you're out of touch with reality. Conversely, keep on being filled with the Spirit. That's the behavior of a person who is controlled by the Spirit, who is reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is reflecting the fruit, not because we are through some phony self-discipline that we think we have. The Holy Spirit impregnates us with qualities that defy human understanding. That's why people don't understand Christians. When they screw you over and you forgive them and you just give them another chance, people don't understand it. They don't. And so they got to screw it up again and then you forgive them again and then they still don't understand it and they keep screwing it up and they keep increasing the severity of what they screw up until you finally meet their expectation, which is, see, I knew you couldn't just keep doing it well, all right, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Well, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to treat others in ways that astound human logic, the human logic that seems to be called for in a situation. And the human logic that seems to be called for in most situations is if you hurt me, I hurt you back. When we're filled with the Spirit, we reflect God's qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, to the whole human race. Well, in today's lesson, we close a three-chapter passage where the Apostle Paul has been encouraging members of the first century church at Corinth to avoid the misuse of their spiritual gifts. And he concludes his argument by telling them how to use spiritual gifts in public worship services. How are Christians to behave in public worship services? We are to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. All right, well, let's hear some music. We often overestimate human power. Here's an example in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. 
which says this, Immediately the boy's father, whose son was possessed by a demon, cried out and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The apostles, the man asked the apostles to cast out the demon and they couldn't do it, but the Lord did. And the father was being honest. He had unbelief and he asked God to solve it for him. Our power as human beings is limited, but God's power is unlimited. God is big. And over time, God the Holy Spirit changes us. He teaches us to use God's power in every circumstance. Until then, we cry out for help from God with words like the one in our opening song, Change My Heart, O God. exactly what God is doing. He's changing our heart every moment. And you can't see those changes, but he can. And he also sees the destination that he's taking you to. And when he looks at you, he always sees you in perfect condition, absolutely righteous, holy, and blameless. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we are grateful for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for being delighted when you see the success and prosperity of your righteous ones, your believers in Christ. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve, 
Instead, we thank you for giving us the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the unconditional love that is the very fiber of your very being. Thank you for showing us over and over again that you are for us, therefore no one can be successful against us. Give us your attitude toward those who dig a pit for our souls, our enemies. Encourage us to be like you, not to want our enemies to get what they deserve. Care for our enemies with your mercy and your grace. Help us understand the difference between those who are on our side and those who are not. And remind us that no matter how we bend to the will of those who are against us, they will simply levy a new set of demands against us. And let us see their efforts with spiritual eyes and help us turn them over to you for your care. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, the successful Christian is a master of self-control. The successful Christian is a master of self-control. Why? Because they are a master of letting God the Holy Spirit show the fruit of the Spirit. Christians master self-control. When we let God the Holy Spirit do the work in our lives, that's the encouragement and instruction the Apostle Paul directs toward the believers in first century Corinth, the first century Corinthian church. He wants them to follow God's instruction in the matter of using their spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapters 12 to 14, the Apostle Paul is answering a question that has been posed by Chloe's people. Some believers in the the Corinthian congregation were claiming to be more spiritual than others because of their spiritual gift. These spiritual elite wanted others to know that because their spiritual gift was a communication gift, the gift of tongues, for example, that their gift was better. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 was the beginning of this, and we know that whenever Paul is talking about an issue from Chloe's people, he starts it with the words, now concerning. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning the spiritually gifted ones, the spiritual elite, brethren, believers in Christ, and they are believers in Christ, by the way. I do not want you to be ignorant of how to handle them, since you're so smart and so knowledgeable. Paul starts with a little sarcasm. In the final part of chapter 14, after our going through several uh, lessons to learn what's going on in the situation, the Apostle Paul sums up the instruction he's been giving the Corinthian believers for the last ten or so lessons of our study. So let's take a look at the passage, and then we'll study it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. What is the outcome then in public worship, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, which is a song, has teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. 1 Corinthians 14, 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and then one must interpret. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the one who speaks tongues must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak, 
and let others pass judgment. Prophet is the person with the gift of prophecy. Both tongues and prophecy are no longer in play as spiritual gifts. They were done away. 1 Corinthians 14.30 But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So we're courteous. We let other people who have revelations talk as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Exhorted is encouraged. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. We'll find out what that means. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Y'all shut up. <laughs> That's not exactly what that means, but I thought I'd have a little fun with it. <laughs> For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. 1 Corinthians 14.35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. 1 Corinthians 14.36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, men, or has it come from men only? So he turns around and speaks to men right after he speaks to women. 1 Corinthians 14.37, And if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Ooh, it's not Paul talking, it's the Lord talking. 1 Corinthians 14.38, But if anyone does not recognize that it's the Lord talking, then he is not recognized. That means he's probably an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 14.39, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.40, But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Well, when we return from our break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll study the passage that we just heard verse by verse. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. My life, I've been told I belong At the end of the line Will all the other not quite Will all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. When Moses had stage fright, and David brought a rock to a sword fight, you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen, and you changed the world. Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start 
talking to me saying who do you think you are I say I'm, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul ever since you rescued me you gave my heart a song to see I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world For the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go Today's Bible lesson, the successful Christian is a master of self-control. The successful Christian is a master of self-control. Well, believers in Christ in the first century church had each other's back in the matter of giving. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says this, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. 
but all things were common property to them. They were not socialists. They didn't believe in the redistribution of wealth. They were simply people who looked out for each other, who had each other's backs. Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35 say this, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and the proceeds would be distributed to each as any had need. Thank you for giving to Barah Ministries so we can look out for those who want to learn the Word of God free of charge, those who have need all around the world. We're looking forward to the day when we, when the impact of our giving can be even greater. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church, and this is a place for real people who want to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth and the Word of God. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and this is a place where we want to have clarity. This is a place where we come to get away from the commu- confusion of the world, which is completely confusing. When you think about it, everybody thinks that religion is sponsored by God. And how many religions are there? There's hundreds, and there's variations in between there. It's How could you even figure out what to do once you get these books? Like Pastor was saying, Mormons have three different names. They have a couple different books they're reciting from. You know, but here, we just use the Bible. It's original language. It's very clear. The world wouldn't tell you that. The world wants you to think there's so many different religions, so many different translations. And so it's just, this is a great place for clarity, you know. And it's interesting for me as we study the Corinthians, who were just, they were elitists, and they had cliques, and they had... They were looking down their nose at people, and the, the poor were angry with the rich, and the rich were angry with the poor, and they just there was no unity. And it's interesting to me how we can study that, and from their disunity, we can have unity in this church. We can learn what not to do. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the verse about love. Love is patient. Love is blind. Love is, does not envy. It does not boast. That's pretty clear. It, that verse clarifies what love is, right? And there's another verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Through 31, that kind of, I think, piggybacks on that. Let all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and ill will or malice be put away from you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Instead, keep on being kind to one another, keep on being compassionate to one another, and keep on forgiving each other, just as God the Father in Christ also has forgiven you. So we don't do those things a lot of times. We, in our thoughts, we think, ah, oh, man, that guy. He doesn't have the same ability as me. He's not as smart as me. We kind of, you know, we do that with all, all kinds of things. Jockey ourselves. Oh, look at my truck's a little better than their truck. And we have these thoughts in our heads, which that's not very cool. You know what I mean? And then those things translate to action or to words. You know, maybe we start talking trash about somebody. Say something bad. You know, we know something a little personal about somebody. It makes us feel good to say, oh, you hear about his family. They don't know what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a little spark can start a fire. You know, one little word can create somebody, can wreak havoc on somebody else's life, you know, revealing some personal details or trying to get back at them. And then, you know, from those thoughts and those words, you know, become actions. You know, maybe you want to take out, take out some anger on somebody. It doesn't help anything. Somebody sees a Christian, you know, fighting somebody else. That's not a good image either way. And so it's just real easy. Let's just, when these thoughts come to our head, let's be kind. Let's not think about and put ourselves on a different level. Like Pastor said, 
my son and I, we're the same. We're both human. I might have more experience than him. It doesn't mean I'm, making, mean I'm better. It doesn't mean I'm smarter. You know, and then when we have these, these, you know, these words come out, let's be compassionate to one another. And when those actions really start to flare up, you want to do something, let's just remember to forgive like Christ forgave us. So in the same way, you know, let's keep all the malice out of your hearts when I come around asking for money. <laughs> it's a very simple verse. It helps me. It helps Christ. And, you know, and then I also want to remind Pastor when, when he's getting those gift cards, just one after the other on his birthday, no anger, no malice. You know, you don't need to take it out on us. <laughs> just re-gift those things. You know, it's, it's easy. <laughs> So, you know, thank you for always supporting this ministry that, you know, we're about clarity and we want you to have clarity and we want us to be good examples. And sometimes it's not easy. I, I act out. I do things I shouldn't. I gossip. I talk about people, you know, and it's, it happens. But let's get through it. Like Pastor said, a good Christian can have self-control. When you have those thoughts flare up, why, why talk bad about somebody? Why gossip? It doesn't help, you know. It doesn't do anything to help yourself. It doesn't do anything to help them. And let alone it doesn't help anybody learn about Christ which is our, the, the main goal in our life. So thank you very much, Pastor, and thank you, everybody, for always giving to this ministry. Thank you, Deacon Denny, and welcome back. The, today's Bible lesson, the successful Christian is a master of self-control. The successful Christian is a master of self-control. I was thinking about Harold and Cindy Christensen 
just now. I meant to mention this in the announcements, but they uh, sent me a note yesterday, and they said they're not going to be at the prayer circle today because they're going to be watching Gonzaga play basketball. And I was so edified by that because you guys are going to completely understand when I cancel all of our lessons on Sundays where Cardinals games start at 10 o'clock when we get to the fall because I certainly don't want to miss that. So So thank you, Harold and Cindy, for setting a precedent that your pastor is more than happy to follow. Until toward the end of the season when they're horrible, and then I don't want to see them at all. Anyway, at, yesterday I got a delivery from Apple, and uh, the guy came up in a Gonzaga shirt and said, now we got to talk, about, talk for 15 minutes about the Zags. It was beautiful. Anyway, in the final section of 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul offers guidelines for public worship. And if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church service, it's all over the place. The services are complete chaos, singing, praying, shouting, raising hands, begging, kneeling, anything for participants to whip themselves into an ecstatic frenzy of pretending worship. And by the way, if you think I'm exaggerating, just get on YouTube and type in Pentecostal worship service, and there are a bunch of two or three hour ones, holy hell, and... (laughs) Like two or three hours, really, doing that. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm being judgmental, I'd say that high-intensity interval training began as a Pentecostal <laughs> church service. Because I'd say, you got to have a lot of energy to go to a Pentecostal worship service. They'll be standing around and they'll be doing this. And that's hard. You know, you do about ten of those and you're you going to get some biceps and triceps. So, yeah, huh? Did you beat tambourines, too? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you got to be in shape to be a Pentecostal. You know, you guys don't have to be in shape. You just come here, you know, keep looking at your watch, waiting for the break, and then get up and get some food and say, oh, thank God. We can, we can listen to this guy now that we got some food and water. So anyway, well, Paul has a different recommendation for public worship. Instead of showing off, instead of making public worship an elitist competition, What should unified believers in Christ, led by God the Holy Spirit, do? That's how Paul concludes this three-chapter passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 26. Here's what he says. What is the outcome of all this stuff I've been teaching you in these three chapters now concerning the spiritual elite, brethren? When you assemble, whether you have a song, a solemn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation to contribute to the worship. Let all things be done for edification. What is edification? It's building each other up. One of the things that I've learned as a teacher is that you don't have to rip somebody down to build them up. Early in my career, one of the funnest things for me to do was to tear people down so that I could build them up. That wasn't that long ago, was it, Denise? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. You my boy Zachary is uh very familiar with that program. Right? And it, it's just not necessary. And it was really a tremendous gift. Uh and, and I I'll even share this story with you. Um I was doing a workshop in Japan 
And the guy that uh, was running this Japanese organization had fired me when he was running the same organization in the United States. And when he fired me, he asked me what I thought of the fact that he was firing me. And I said, you're firing me because you suck as a leader. And he said, why do you say that? And I told him, and I'll, I'll keep that part of the story brief, but the thing that I told him, he ended up exceeding the performance expectations that I thought that his group could do. And so he got promoted to Japan. So he brought me over to Japan. And when I went over to Japan, you know, I did my thing. And the Japanese are very sensitive about you getting in their face. Well, I was right in their face right away. And, you know, so he just shook his head. He said, I want to take you out to dinner. He said, you know, I just need to give you some feedback. And I love feedback. So I said, okay, give me some feedback. He said, focus selling. Your customer development system is so elegant. It's so elegant. It's so good. But you, you're an asshole. <laughs> you guys laughed a little bit too hard on that, just so you know. I don't, I don't take offense. <laughs> but he said, if you would just teach the first five sessions of your program before you start ripping into people, by the fifth session, they would love you because the, the, the content is so elegant. And then when you rip into them, they would already know that you're on their side. But you don't do that. And so you just ruin the whole experience for everybody. It changed my teaching. It changed my teaching because you don't have to do that. You really don't have to do that. And what, what teachers who do that are really doing is putting themselves up here and putting everybody else down here. Right? That's a form of teacher elitism that's just not welcome in the teaching circle. It's just not valuable. So, you know, when, when I think of what Paul is trying to do here, he's really trying to teach people what it takes to have fruit of the Spirit public worship, where it's edifying to everybody. It's building everybody up. What was, what was this guy telling me? He was telling me, just build them up first. Build them up. Don't tear them down. And, you know, one of the things I've found as a teacher is that people spend so much time tearing themselves down that you really don't have to spend any time tearing them down. Because it's, it's a double punishment. Because they're tearing themselves up, and then you come in and stomp on their dead body. It's just not smart. It's not, it's not teaching. Anger is the enemy of instruction. And so when teachers are getting angry and doing those kind of things, they're just not helping the situation. So I've stopped doing that, and the result has been predictably excellent. Well, Paul instructs the believers in Corinth to worship in a way that is not chaotic. Why? Because it doesn't build anybody up. To worship in a way that is others-focused, thus considerate of what other people need. I don't want unbelievers coming into the church and being mistreated. I don't want people coming in here and getting ripped because of where they happen to be in their journey. But I do want them to know that there is something other than their journey. And I want them to know that I've been in the hell of their journey. 
That's why God put me through religion and through systematic theology so that when I get up and teach about it, I'm not teaching about what I think or what I guess is true. I'm teaching about stuff that I actually went through for 50 years, deceived for 50 years, and tolerating the deceptions. Because everything in a religion and everything in systematic theology was not deception. There was truth in it. But the thing about Christianity is there's no falseness in it. See? In religion, there's truth, but there's falseness. And that falseness can send you right off the deep end. That falseness can give you a false impression of who God is. That is not welcome in your soul. You need to have an accurate picture of who God is. It has taken me so long to get to the point where I just believe that, you know, I used to believe that if something good is going on in my life, something bad has to follow. That's not at all what happens with God. When something good is happening in your life, it's good. And when something bad is happening in your life, it's good. He lays out the path that you can walk in because you're a piece of art to him. You are his workmanship, according to Ephesians 2.10. And he works all things together for your good, Romans 8.28. So... This, these falsehoods that we have about God and who he is is just crazy. And, and, and it's so easy to not be confused about it because if you just go to this thing, God loves you unconditionally. Okay, does somebody who loves you unconditionally want to put you through a bunch of stuff designed to hurt you? No. Uh, one of the things I was reading this week, God is testing me. He doesn't test you. And the example given was when he asked Abraham to take Isaac up on a mountain and kill him, right? And then in the, at the last minute, God intervened and said, no, don't do it. God wasn't testing Abraham when he did that. He's omniscient. He already knows how you're going to react in every circumstance. He's not testing you. He's giving you a chance to demonstrate your faith. He gave Abraham a chance to demonstrate his faith. Abraham, I want you to take your kid up and kill him. Excuse me? I want you to take your kid up, put him on a funeral pyre, kill him, and then just light the pyre. Yeah. Okay. So Abraham sits down and thinks about it, and he says, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a God who loves me unconditionally. So I bet that's not really the outcome he's after. So on his way up, he tells his slaves, hey, I'm going to go up with the boy. We'll be back down. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say we'll be back down if he thinks he's going up to kill him? See? So he gets up there. He pulls the knife. He holds. And, and, and the funniest thing is Isaac, Isaac is a grown man. He's a, a young man in his late 20s, early 30s, and Isaac says, hey, man, Dad, where's the, the ram that we usually take up to, for the sacrifice? <laughs> Abraham says, oh, don't, don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, man. Something like I would do, right, Zach? <laughs> yeah, very true. 
So, <laughs> so he goes up there and he pulls the knife and God said, nah, you get it. I just wanted to teach you the level of sacrifice that you have inside of you, which is the same level of sacrifice that my father has inside of him, that he was willing to put his son to death to pay for the sin of the world. And I just wanted you to see what that was like. But no need to finish it off. You now know that you would be willing to do the same thing that my father was willing to do. It's not a test. That's us getting a chance to demonstrate our faith. That's what tribulation is all about. You get a chance to demonstrate your faith. You get a chance to prove to you how big you think God is. Isn't that amazing? I think God is testing me. You're not that important, honestly. But you're important enough to him for him to let you see where you stand in the matter of faith. So Paul doesn't want believers in Corinth to be worshiping in an individualistic, selfish, ego-driven, my spiritual gift is better than your spiritual gift way of doing things. Public worship is best when it has protocol, a protocol that edifies believers and unbelievers alike. What is protocol? It's a set of guidelines governing, governing a procedure. What Paul is saying is that worship service should have procedure. Now, when you think about what your spiritual gift is, for example, your spiritual gift is to be given to the congregation that you're a part of. What is your spiritual gift, and do you use it to build others up in the church, or are you too self-conscious for that? Success is defined by restriction, and restriction is self-control. What is focus? It's self-control. What is focus? It's choosing certain things and thus rejecting everything that is not part of your focus. It is you limiting yourself and restricting yourself and binding yourself as opposed to, uh, I just go with the flow, man. I just go with the flow. It's like how whatever way the wind blows, it's all chilly with me. Yeah, like a tsunami where you stand there with your camera and the tsunami comes in and picks you up and slams you into that wall and slams you into that wall, that is not God's plan for you. All right, well, here are the public worship restrictions that Paul suggests. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. If anyone wishes to speak in tongues in a public worship service, that is a spiritual gift, it should be spoken by two people or at the most three each in turn, one after the other, and after each one, someone must interpret. Sometimes it's the person with the tongues that interprets. Sometimes it's another person with the gift of interpretation that interprets. But what it is not is that, 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 and then on to the next person who's that, 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 that. And every time I do that, 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 that thing, June has a flashback. Of her Pentecostal days. Denise has a flashback of her Pentecostal days when she was doing that. Were you doing that? She did that. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay. Why? Because you were wearing a dress? Da da da. Come on. Oh, man. 
Yeah, exactly. Memories like the corners of my mind. Oh, gosh. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. But if there is no interpreter, the one who speaks in tongues must keep silent in the church. Instead, let him speak to himself and to God. Right? And the gift of tongues was that. It was you were speaking to yourself or to God. And if you spoke it out loud, and it was unintelligible, there had to be somebody to interpret it so people would understand it and be edified by it. Now, keep silent in Greek means hold your tongue. What does it mean to hold your tongue? It, it Think before you speak. It doesn't mean shut up, necessarily. It means think before you speak. And what are you thinking about before you speak? You're thinking about whether you're, what you're about to say is edifying. Isn't that what the, the guy in Japan was telling me? Wait five sessions before you start the stupid stuff. Because by then, people won't think it's stupid. Okay, I can do that. Hold your tongue. So, and by the way, no pun intended on the hold your tongues. Hold your tongues. No. Too much charisma spoils the broth. So Paul is saying that if people speak in tongues in public worship, the message has to be understandable to all, thus it would edify. And the way this happens is through someone with the spiritual gift of interpretation. So Paul also encourages the public worship service to be absent of the ecstasy, the frenzy, and the uncontrolled emotion that is typical of the gift of tongues being expressed in services. And I don't know how the Pentecostals do it, honestly, because when you whip yourself up into that emotional lather, it is so tiring. I don't even know how you can listen after you've whipped yourself up into that frenzy. <laughs> Denise said, you can't. <laughs> I'm feeling you. In the matter of the spiritual gift of prophecy, Paul concludes... In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 to 32, let two or three prophets speak in a public worship service and let the others appraise what he has said. You hear what the prophet has to say. God is talking to the prophet. The prophet talks to you just like God the Holy Spirit talks to me when I'm writing a lesson. I write down what he's saying so that I can deliver it to you. And then let others appraise what is being said. You are to appraise what I'm saying, and you're to apply it to your own life. 1 Corinthians 14.30. But if a revelation from God is made to another who's seated in the public assembly, the first prophet speaking must keep silent, that is, hold the tongue, and defer to the new speakers. In other words, be respectful of others who want to speak as well. 1 Corinthians 14.31 For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. All should be edified. 1 Corinthians 14.32 And the spirits of the prophets are to be controlled by the prophets. You can control your tongue. When you have the gift of prophecy, you can control your tongue and you have to talk when it's your turn to talk. So Paul concludes by addressing a problem that was happening in the Corinthian congregation, the conduct of married women in the church. And it's the second time he addresses the issue. You remember the first time he addressed the issue is where they weren't wearing head coverings, right, earlier in the letter. 
Well, now the married women are at it again. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 40 say this. The married women. Oh, wait, I missed one. This is the, an important verse before we go to that next part about married women. So why is all this stuff in verses 26 to 32 important? For God the Father is not a God of confusion. He is not a God of disorder and chaos. He does not want disorder and chaos in his church services. He is a God of peace, the, f- the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And in all the churches of the saints, his spirit is producing that fruit containing peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, Paul concludes by addressing the problem that's happening with the married women. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 40 say this. The married women are to keep silent in the churches. What does that mean? To hold their tongues. It doesn't mean they can't talk, for they are not permitted to speak out of turn, but are to subject themselves to whom? Who do married women subject themselves to? Their own husbands, exactly, just as the Mosaic Law also says. All right, so we're going to find out what that means. So not only were these ladies not covering their head in church, as Paul addressed earlier in the letter, at times they were embarrassing their husbands. That's what they were doing. Okay? So 1 Corinthians 14, 35. If married women desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. I always love it when God talks about uh, married women, and he always says, listen to your own husband, because married women are typically pretty good at listening to other people's husbands, <laughs> but not listening to their own damn husband. Listen to your own man. <laughs> Amen, boys. Come on, I tell you, we don't get no respect. <laughs> so, if they desire... To learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And this is what is meant by that. Not talk, but speak in a way that might shame her husband and cause him to lose face. And that's what these women were doing. So the men would stand up and say something, and the women would break their faces. I don't agree with that. It ought to be like this. And all Paul is saying is do that at home. Don't do that in public. What is, what is that called? It's decorum. See, this is the thing. Whenever the Bible starts talking about anything gender-related, everybody gets their shackles on. Look, go to Galatians 6, 326. There is no social distinction, no slave or free. There is no gender distinction, no male or female. There is no racial distinction, Jew or Greek, in God's plan. He doesn't see gender. Why do we? He doesn't see race. Why do we? Because we're elitists, all of us. We think we're better than other people. I'm skinny, you're fat. I'm cute, you're ugly. I'm tall, you're short. You name it. I'm black, you're white. It's just silliness that we engage in as human beings. God is not like that. That's why we have to teach the Bible from God's perspective. Because human beings, I've heard 
pastors take this and use it against women. Y'all need to shut up. Well, all right. So I get that. Women speak 25,000 words a day, men 12,000. Right? By the time we get home, y'all still got 13,000 to go. I get it. All right? We want y'all to shut the hell up because we, we do. Because the 13,000, it's absolutely uncanny how the 13,000 always comes out right in the middle of March Madness. Amen? I'm watching who? I want to talk to you right after this. Now go fix some damn dinner. <laughs> keep, yourself, keep yourself occupied until, until the game's over. <laughs> what is love? Hey. <laughs> oh, man. I am so crazy. I love using my pulpit for my stand-up comedy routine. By the way, do you know why women should wear white at weddings? No, because the dishwasher should always be the same color as the stove and the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) He got jokes. (laughs) You want me to explain that one to you? That is. That's not a good one. (laughs) That's not a good joke, but it's funny. Anyway, so there's no gender thing going on here with Paul. There's no partiality thing. It was just that the married women were breaking their husband's face. They were embarrassing their husbands by not wearing uh, head covering, which was protocol, and decorum mutually agreed upon culture and they were speaking against their husband in church which was embarrassing for the husband but embarrassing to everybody else too because I don't know if you've ever been out to dinner when a couple was having a fight and they were passive aggressiving each other at the dinner table and it's just uncomfortable you know and I'm bold enough to say all right cut it out please we're supposed to have some dinner. Bring some more alcohol for these people. So that's what was going on here. It was not gender-related per se at all. Now, lest you think men, you men think you're special, Paul addresses that too in 1 Corinthians 14.36. He says, was it from you men that the word of God first went forth? And the answer is no, it was from God. Or has it come to you men only? No, God is talking to men and women. So he quickly puts the, this is a gender issue thing, to rest. Women are a very valuable part of the worship service. And Paul makes it clear that the direction he is providing are God's thoughts, not his. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, not my commandment. So the Lord has protocol. He created everybody. He knows what the protocol is. We are to follow it. 1 Corinthians 14, 38. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And who would recognize this? Believers in Christ. Who would not recognize this? Unbelievers. Because unbelievers are the people who are typically behind all this gender crap and all this race crap. 
1 Corinthians 14.39. Therefore, my brethren, summing it all up, desire earnestly to prophesy in the public worship service. Don't forbid the speaking in tongues. But I told you earlier, prophecy is more important than tongues because prophecy edifies the believer and the unbeliever. Tongues is between you and God unless it's interpreted. So that's it. But most of all, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, all things have to be done properly and in an orderly manner. What's the word? Protocol. Protocol. Strict procedure. Now, it has to be obvious to us in this last section of the passage that God is not a respecter of gender. He doesn't think about that. He would never intimate in any way that women are inferior to men because he doesn't think so. And it's not true even from a practical sense. You know, if you just think about it, who has raised black men? I'll tell you, their moms, black women, because a lot of black men leave their families, abandon their families. See, who always gets stuck with the prize package, the little baby? Women. 95% of the time, when there is a pregnancy not involving marriage, the woman is on the hook for it. And that's why I like talking to teenage girls. You know, teenage girls are really, they mature faster than teenage boys. And, and teenage girls connect sex to love. If I give you sex, that means you have to love me. And guys are not like that. They will take your sex, not love you, and leave you with the 21-year prize package. And if you think that you're going to be the teenage girl that's smart enough to reverse that trend, you aren't going to be. I will tell you that. You're going to get stuck with a prize package that you don't want for 21 years with no support, no help. And that's the truth. And that happens 99% of the time. I don't know if you've ever heard of shotgun weddings. Have you ever heard of that? But it used to be a long time ago that if a, a guy got a girl pregnant, the girl's father would make the boy marry the girl at the end of a shotgun. Thus, a shotgun wedding. You are marrying my daughter. You are raising your child. Right? I think we should go back to that. No, it really irritates me that, that men just abandon the responsibility. It irritates me to no end. And not because my dad left in 30 days when he found out that my mom was pregnant. It's just wrong. It's not just because it's my experience. It's just wrong. You play, you pay. So God isn't doing this uh, women are inferior to men thing because women are awfully strong. As a matter of fact, I, I just, I, I marvel at women. I, I don't understand how women put up with some of the guys that they put up with. I don't understand it. And women will get abused and they will stay there. Why? Because they're amazing, that's why. But nobody's giving them credit for that. My mom used to tell me about her first husband. Every night he would come home and hold her at knife point. And she stayed with him for 10 years. 
What's up with that? I don't get it. I don't get why you stay in that circumstance. But that's women. Women have an unlimited ability to take people's shit. That's not weak. That is not weak. And anybody who thinks submission is weak is insane. That is not weak. It's very powerful. So when women get their backs up about gender, ignoring that God's plan has protocol, it's Satan-inspired. Satan wants you to get your back up. Satan wants women to dislike men because Satan is into disunity. God is not. Paul's whole point in the matter of public worship is that it should edify all who attend. It should be organized and not chaotic, and it should avoid conduct unbecoming of a Christian. According to Paul, the best public worship services are peace-inspiring, a sentiment the Apostle James echoes in James chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says this, that one of the guys I want to meet in heaven is James. James is a bad boy. He, he does not mince words. He is direct. Here's what he says. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, like spiritual elitism, there's disorder and every evil thing. James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is, is first and foremost pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Same exact thing Deacon Denny said in the offering message. You can do this, or instead you can do this. James is saying the same thing. This is the Corinthian public worship service and their approach to Christianity. It is chaotic, jealous, selfish, ambitious, elitist, disorder with every evil thing, and that is not what God wants from us. Amen? All right, so two chapters to go in 1 Corinthians. That should take us a couple of months. We'll pick up our study of chapter 15 after the Resurrection Day service next week. So the closing moments of our study today are a reminder to everyone who does not have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that God wants you. And if you don't have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you have the chance to be precious in His sight. Psalm 116, verse 15 says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, his saints, his believers in Christ. Why is that so precious in his sight? Because he knows that he's going to get to personally escort them to heaven. The fact that God wants you is a great thing to know as you get older because there will be a day when it is apparent to you that no one gets out of this life alive. What's going to happen to you when you close your eyes in this life? Will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? There are only two choices. God has an enemy, Satan, the ruler of this world, and he has distorted Christianity by erecting counterfeits to Christianity, religions designed to mislead you into thinking that you're saved when you might not be. Roman Catholicism is one of those counterfeits. Here is an example from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says this, 
moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. What is this saying? It's saying that we can earn our salvation and that we can pray for the dead. And that is not true. Through religion, Satan wants you to think that you can work your way to heaven. He wants you to think that you can earn your own salvation. And he wants you to think that you can pray for the dead to help them earn salvation. He is lying. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, Is it appointed by God for men to die once? And after physical death comes judgment, God's evaluation. You cannot work for salvation. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says, If salvation is by grace, and of course it is, a free gift from God, it is no longer on the basis of your works. Otherwise, grace as a free gift from the source of God is no longer free. If you have to work for your salvation, then it's not free. If because when you do work, that makes you deserve the gift. In salvation, there is no work that you could do to be perfect. There's no work you could do to be impressive enough to God to let God let you save yourself. But the Lord provides us with the Bible to illuminate the path to heaven. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, These things written in the Bible have been written here so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God in human form, and that by believing in Him, you may have the resurrection life in His name. John, the gospel about the deity of Christ, has the word believe in it 98 times. Pistuse, 98 times. That's how important it is. The Bible contains the Lord's exact thinking. It is your life owner's manual, and it obliterates the delusion that any of us are good people in God's eyes. The Bible says we're all bad people. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says all creatures have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, it is written, there is no creature who is righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3 is the biggest indictment of the human race that you will ever see. The first 19 verses are chilling in what they have to say about human beings and who we are in God's eyes as unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, All in union with Adam at physical birth, and all of us are in union with Adam at physical birth, we have his original sin imputed to us at the moment of physical birth. That's every human being is in union with Adam at physical birth, are set to die the second death in the lake of fire. We come here not on God's team. That's not our fault, but it is our circumstance. The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ did something about the problem. He has a plan for your life because he doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise of salvation, as some accuse him of. Instead, he is patient toward unbelievers, not wishing for any to perish in the lake of fire, but for all to come to repentance, which is a change of mind voluntarily about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can you get to heaven? Right where you sit right now. 
You can tell God the Father that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the moment of eternal life for you. Acts chapter 16 verse 31 says this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and everyone in your household who also believes. The one way, the only way to get to heaven is through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing added to it. John chapter 14 verse 6 says this. Jesus said to the doubting Apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation. I am the truth through the word of God, the gospel message. I am the resurrection life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven but through believing in me. Who is this God who saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, which say this. I, Paul delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Believing in Christ Jesus is your acknowledgement that you can't do a thing to get to heaven on your own. It is your confirmation that being a good person does not get you to heaven. There are going to be a lot of good people in the lake of fire. And they're going to be scratching their heads, wondering how they got there, because they did everything their religion told them to do, and it was not good enough. It's so simple to be saved. It's wise to let God save you. Don't try to save yourself, because once God does something, he never changes his mind. John chapter 10, verse 28 says this, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, give eternal life, the resurrection life, to believers in Christ, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. The soul once born never dies, but you get to choose where it spends eternity. You cannot lose your salvation, and if anyone tells you that you can lose your salvation, they are lying to you. So heed the warning in John chapter 3, Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. You can join me and a host of your believer friends in heaven when you close your eyes in this life. All you have to do is choose it right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. All right, well, let's close with music. June's going to sing one of my favorite songs. The Word of God is filled with promises from God concerning what He will do for us in times of trouble. Among them, Psalm 50, verse 15, where the Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. June Murphy tells us what the Word of God does for us in her song. Your word takes me. Lord, you tell me that you love me. Your words are love song to my soul. You tell me I'm your 
showing off there at the end, right? <laughs> uh, look at the capacity of my lungs. <laughs> I'd have been coughing like crazy on that. <laughs> great song, great singing. Thank you, June. A doxology of praise to our God, Romans 8:37. In every situation imaginable, believers in Christ keep on being overwhelmingly conquering through the Lord who loves us unconditionally. Romans 8.38, I, Paul, am convinced that neither death nor life, nor elect angels who wouldn't, nor principalities, demons, fallen angels who couldn't, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, Romans 8.39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to sever us from the unconditional love of God the Father who is for us through our union with Christ Jesus our Lord. A great love testimony from a great God directed toward you personally. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for letting your word take us to places that only we can go with you intimately and personally. We just thank you for the intimacy that you give us. We thank you for having us personally in mind. We thank you for thinking enough of us when you were angry to send your Son to die for us. We thank you for sending God the Holy Spirit as a guide to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit so that we can reflect you and the entire Godhead with our actions and our thoughts. And we just pray that as we go forward this week, you keep our spiritual eyes open and that we look for the dangers from our enemy, but we also look for ways to lead unbelievers to Christ and to lead believers in Christ to the Word, especially by opening the newsletter reading it and passing it on to other people. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.